Tonight's New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 11. Um, it's found on page 4 in your bulletins. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me as we pray? God, to be in your presence means to be in the presence of life, holiness, grace, goodness, justice, mercy. And we pray that you might be all of those things to us you have been throughout the entire service. Would you continue now as we look into your word, your spoken word, in honor of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in a series we're calling Life in the Spirit, and that simply means how does God's Spirit lead people to live? And there's lots of ways God's Spirit leads us to live. We're looking at a few of them. And tonight, I want to look at what it means to make a journey from perfectionism into grace. What it means to make a journey from perfectionism into grace. And by perfectionism, I mean that belief that anything short of perfection is unacceptable. Anything flawed is unacceptable. And yet, before we look at the dangers of that, before we look at uh, the problems with that, we should ask ourselves, well, why does it exist? And the reason it exists is because we have been made in the image of a perfect God. This is why we long for perfection. The New Testament says that we were created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Perfection. Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, the Son of God, said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, in that, we're being called to long and to strive after God's perfect goodness, His righteousness, His mercy, as I prayed earlier. And we're also to hope for perfection. One day, perfect bodies, perfect minds. Perfect shalom in the city. Perfect integration of my gifts and who I am. The longing for perfection is a good thing. We have been made for it. But like anything, a good thing can get distorted. And this is precisely what sin does. This idea of sin and evil. 
it hijacks our desire for perfection and begins to distort it in a couple ways. One is we begin to substitute true perfection for our own version of it or other people's version of it. I've been reading a book by a guy named Chuck DeGroat. It's called Wholeheartedness. How do you live in a whole way, spiritually whole? And in it, he talks about perfectionism, and he uh, labels it that what he calls the inner critic that lives in each of us. Let me read a little portion. He says, the inner critic remembers how it felt for you to be picked last for the kickball team, to be ignored by your alcoholic father, to be pushed hard by your demanding perfectionist mother. The critic got in your ear when you were studying for the spelling bee so that you wouldn't experience the shame of misspelling a word in front of your classmates. In fact, the critic's power is so great that many of us still have dreams of forgetting to study for a test or being chosen last for a team. Even our dreams reveal the perfectionistic agenda of the inner critic. I'm guessing most of us can connect with what he said there to some degree. I know I can. I've already confessed to you. I have that dream all the time of the science test I wasn't ready for. The other thing sin does, it sins to distort, and that is we seek to hide our imperfection from God and other people. This is a result of sin. We hide ourselves from the God who has made us. What do you and I do when we've blown it in front of someone, or rather we, we know we have, we've disappointed someone. We've fallen short of their expectations. Well, what we do is we try to stay away from them. We don't want to spend time with them. They come in that door, we try to go in another door. Well, if that's your situation with God, well, you're in a fix, aren't you? Because God is perfect, and you're not going to want to get near him. But thirdly, the way sin distorts a true longing perfect perfectionism is that we miss out on grace. The Christian gospel tells us that God, through his son Jesus Christ, for those that embrace his perfect son, he forgives their imperfection and he credits his son's perfection to them. Sometimes the way we say this is, you know, God not only takes away all your F's, he gives you all his A's through Jesus. This was the Christian gospel calls us to, this amazing gift of grace, which perfectionism seeks to keep us away from. This is ultimately what perfectionism is doing. It's keeping you away from the gospel of grace, and it's keeping you away from the God who loves you. And so, through the gospel we can, as one song lyric says, look into our, look into our judge's face and see a Savior there. We find a Savior. And there we begin to flourish. Again, Chuck DeGroat would say, what I see in the lives of so many adult men and women is a kind of spiritual and emotional failure to thrive. Created to flourish, we experience nagging despair. Made to receive and give joy, we battle cynicism and resignation. Invited to relax our control strategies, we anxiously perfect ourselves for others and sometimes even for a God who we believe is eternally disappointed in our lack of progress. Ouch. Now, the Apostle Paul was a world-class perfectionist. He was someone committed to perfectionism. 
And one day he met Jesus Christ, and that changed. And I would say there were a few things that he experienced. One was acknowledgement of failure. The second thing was acceptance of self. And third thing is the ambition of grace. And that's what I'd like to look at as the journey out of perfectionism into perfect grace. So let's look at that. First of all, acknowledgement of failure. If we had time, I'd go to Philippians chapter 3, where Paul basically talks about his perfectionism. He says, you know, the family I came from, perfect family. Our commitment to the local synagogue and the church, it was perfect commitment. All the I's were dotted, all the T's were crossed. My moral performance before the law, the Jewish law, was perfect. In terms of my achievements and gifts, perfection. And and the New Testament book of Galatians, Paul says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. You know, Paul was that sort of people that the parents looked at and said, man, I wish I could have a son like Paul. Paul was that person that everybody looked at and go, man, he is like gifted beyond his years. Really the way every parent feels about their child, right? But this was true. And so, in this situation, Paul was one that could really boast about his confidence. In Philippians 3, he says, if you've got reasons to boast about your perfectionism, I've got more. I think I've mentioned before, one of my friends who's a New Testament scholar said, by his reckoning, the Apostle Paul probably had two to three PhDs by the time he was in his early 20s, if you want to compare cultural standards. But all of us feel the same longing. You know, we long, we wish we had... It's the, per- it's the personality we wish we had, the body we wish we had, the gifts we wish we had, the relationships we wish we had, the family we wish we had. That longing in each one of us. And so Jesus Christ shows up to Paul the perfectionist, and he writes a giant F over his life. You failed, Paul. As Thomas Merton is, uh, in, you know, famously said, climbing the ladder of success only to find it was leaning on the wrong building. Christ meets Paul, and in reality, Paul's life is a colossal failure. He says this in Philippians 3. He says, it's a loss. It's rubbish. It was refuse, what I was doing. It's sort of like imagining you're going to watch a lifetime achievement ward of yourself, you know, where they play all the slides and have all the video of all the great things you've done, and instead what comes up on the video screen is the Fort Totten dump. You just see garbage. This was what Paul said. And so in our passage, he goes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And you find this progression in Paul's life In his earlier writing, he says this, for I am the least of the apostles. In his later writing, he says, I am the least of the saints. And then in his most late writing, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. It's kind of this downward progression. Now, if you're hearing that, you go, man, this guy should have had some therapy. He should have had some counseling. He had such a bad view of himself, this tortured, gifted person. But here's the problem. Paul was so full of joy and hope. He was the most joyful guy in the world. How can those things coexist? Our minds cannot understand that. We cannot understand a person that is honest about their failure and yet is full of joy and confidence. I have only seen it with people that come to know Jesus Christ and the grace of God. 
I've only seen a glimpse of it in those people. And then he goes on after that point to be one of the most productive peoples in history. He writes a bestseller, right, the Bible? There's a lot of chapters in that book. He has a big part in an organization that went global and is keep going. How many organizations have lasted over 2,000 years? I don't know of many. This one's still going. It's flourishing. Great missionary, great theologian. But it's because he learned to live by grace, not perfectionism, and the doorway into that grace, the cover charge into God's grace, is acknowledging our failure. That's the cover charge. God has taught me this in at least three areas that I've sought to be a perfectionist. My preaching, music, and my parenting. Um, When I was planting this church some 14 years ago, uh, I was going up to um, Redeemer, New York, where uh, St. Tim Keller preaches, (laughs) right, you know, and, uh, you know, it was part of the training. Redeemer Church helped plan our church, so I was in this cohort of guys, and uh, we had a teacher, a mentor, a guy named Al Barth. He actually preached at our first service, and at the end of that time, two years of training, he was kind of giving each person an exit interview, and he was going through the various things that he said, you know, strengths, this, that, weakness, and he he came to preaching, and he said, "Uh, you're a good preacher, you're not a great preacher, you're a good preacher. And I was like, ow, right? Now, you're looking at me going, Glenn, isn't that obvious? Like, I could, you'd be surprised (laughs) by that. And here's the truth, Uh, you know, I do some uh, assessment of church planners, and every one of them ranks themselves higher for preacher than their references do. That's a common thing. Pastors regularly ref, you know, rank themselves as higher preachers. In fact, when I talk to young guys and say, well, tell me what your gifts are, they'll say, well, my gifts are teaching and preaching. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know you think that. <laughs> Maybe in 30 years you'll be good. Very few great. And then with music. You know, I spent the first 25 years of my life pursuing music. And I found myself in this situation where I was, I, I, probably about eight or nine years ago, where I was struggling going, you know, did I do the right thing? And I talked to a guy that had been a professional musician, he's also a pastor, and he's very close to me, and I was pouring out my heart to him, maybe I missed the boat. And he said, no, I get what you're saying, maybe you missed the boat, you know, maybe if you would have pushed it hard, you could have been someone like a John Mayer, or, a, you know, someone else, or a John Schofield, or someone like that. And he said, but, you know, there's two things I want to encourage you with. One, you didn't make the wrong decision, because you're a good pastor. And the second thing I want to say to you is this. When it comes to music, you're not that good. (laughs) And he said that to me, and I thought, and he was totally serious. And I just was like, I can't believe he just said that to me. (laughs) It was actually at General Assembly, you know, the annual meeting of the PCA seven or eight years ago. And then with parenting, you know, I remember being in a counseling room and having a counselor say to me, Glenn, did you hear what your daughter just said to you? She felt crushed by you, what you said to her. Crushed. I failed in all the areas that I've sought to be a perfectionist. But I found the gospel. I found the grace of God to be sweet in my life, the righteousness of God in my life. And as the perfectionist world crumbles, something happens. Out of the ashes, a real self emerges. This happened to the Apostle Paul. Out of those ashes, the real self came out. 
which is the second thing, the acceptance of self. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, our culture tends to major on the second part of that statement. I am what I am, which is, you know, uh, be true to thy own self. This is who I am, and accept me as I am. But when you think about it, um, that is really self-acceptance in a somewhat self-centered way. I mean, the bottom line is none of us really just declares our self-acceptance. As much as modern people like to see, I construct myself, and I decide who I am, and you, know, you accept me as I am, that's just not true. You know, who we are is contributed by many things, of people in our lives, in our communities, and what we understand. And what Paul says, Paul isn't saying, listen, I am who I am, just deal with it. He's saying, I am who I am before God by the grace of God. That I came to understand who I was under the shelter of grace, under the safety of grace, in the light of grace. I came to truly be able to accept myself because if I can't receive criticism from people, if the rules are you can't ever challenge my self-identity, well, I'm really just an insecure person. But can I sit there and go, no, this person can speak into who I am. And how did this happen for Paul? I, I think there were many ways, but there are three that came to mind I think are significant. How did this true self emerge? One, Paul discovered what I called is the free self. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, we have lots of versions of the free self in modern American society, but they pale and fall in comparison to what it means to be free before a righteous and holy God. Not to create your own God and be free before him, but to be free before a righteous and holy God. This is what the gospel teaches that we said, this idea that I stand before God as I am, in the rubbish, in the refuge. And I stand before him in that way, and he comes toward me, and when I think, man, he's just going to cock the gun and blow me off the face of the earth, he comes to me, and he cleans me, and he washes me, and he robes me in righteousness as a royal son or a royal daughter. And as I look at him doing that, I see scars in his wrist, and I'm reminded, oh, you took the judgment for my imperfection, and I'm wearing your robe of grace and righteousness. And at that point, something changes in your life. You actually feel free to take a risk. You feel free not to take yourself so seriously. You can laugh at yourself. This whole question of God's will in our lives, you know, many times when people come to me with that question, is what's God's will, what should I do? They've already done a lot of good homework. They've, said, you know, they, they've looked at what the Bible says, and I don't think this choice is forbidden by what God would say. They've got counsel from friends. They've prayed, and they come to me, and I said, listen, I think you ought to go with your gut, because you did all these other things, and guess what? You're not going to fall off the flat earth, because there is no flat earth for a child of God. There's no plan B for a child of God. You've done your diligence. Act out freely. Your father loves you. He's not going to give up on you. A free self but also a beloved self. Elsewhere, Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy, free words. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Does your spirit 
If you're someone that has embraced Christ, I want to ask you, does your spirit regularly testify that you belong to God? Does your spirit regularly testify to you, I belong to God and I am a beloved child of God? Because it should. If you're not hearing that voice, it's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're hearing the voice of the accuser. You should hear that, and it's not depending on how you did that weekend or this week. I think one of the uh, signs of this is freedom in prayer because a, a child that feels accepted and safe, they freely come to their parents. I, I loved that stage when my kids were younger, and they would just ask the most audacious things, right? They would just come to me and just say, can we, can we tomorrow go across the world? And I'd be like, you know, I'm glad. I hope I didn't go, oh, be realistic. I hope instead I would go, you know, honey, that's a great idea. I don't think we can pull that off by tomorrow. Let's pray, right? <laughs> that's the way out especially if you're a pastor. Let's pray about that. Uh, but there's this quote, I've shared it once before, but it's worth you hearing again because I've read it a number of times and I love it. And this is from a great renowned theologian named Charles Hodge. This is a guy, right, that has written systematic theologies. He's a professor in a seminary and he's, he's looking back almost nostalgically to when he was a child and what his conversations were like with God. And this is what he says. In my childhood, I had the habit of thanking God for everything I received and asking him for everything that I wanted. If I lost a book or any of my playthings, I prayed that I might find it. I prayed walking along the streets, in school and out of school, whether playing or studying. I did not do this to any prescribed rule. It seemed natural. I thought of God as an everywhere being, full of kindness and love, who would not be offended if children talked to him. I knew he cared for sparrows. I was as cheerful and happy as the birds and acted as they did. This idea that I'm accepted and I can speak to him. And lastly, a secure self. Paul says, I am what I am. You know what that means? That means my hardware, my body and my brains, my software, my story, my triumphs and my traumas. Whatever story you have, and you know, we, we spend so much time envying for one another's stories, missing all the time that God has written a redemption story for you that in heaven people will be going like this. People will be celebrating the grace of God. And here's the thing, and I feel like I, I've, I've slowly, uh, slowly come to see this. When I am my most grace authentic person, that's when I'm, I'm, I'm most powerful. You are your most powerful when you are most in that place where you are your grace-accepted self. We need to see your power. We don't need you to be someone else. We need you to be you. I need to see your strengths, your story, your power, because this is what God has given to us. But lastly, this leads to what I'll call the ambition of grace. Not all ambition is sinful. One of our faith and work 
seminars, was, I, I was so glad we had that topic. Not all ambitious is sinful. There can be holy ambition. Paul's self-acceptance didn't make him passive, indifferent, or lazy. He says, God's grace toward me was not in vain. He felt a debt. You know, this is the difference between cheap grace and real grace. Cheap grace makes you unmotivated. You just feel like, you know, there's nothing urgent. There's no sense of urgency. And I would say, you know, that's really not the grace Paul's talking about. He had been lit up by the grace of God, and he felt a debt that he had been stewarded with such an amazing gift. I mean, good night. He understood what he had been given, that God had brought him into the inner circle, that God had adopted him, that God had crowned him with loving kindness, that God had robed him in righteousness, that God had said, you are my son, that God had forgiven his sins, that God had swept him up in his eternal purposes. And this is what he's done for every follower of Christ. How in the world could we be passive? There's a disconnect, right? His self-acceptance led to ambition, and even to work harder. He mentions this line. I love it. He goes, I worked harder than the other apostles. But he's not boasting. He goes, but the grace of God in me worked harder. Why? Because Paul felt he had been given a greater debt. He persecuted the church, and he felt that led him to even work harder. Perfectionism sucks the life out of your work and your labor. Grace is what empowers you to work like you've never worked before. Because perfectionism just kills your energy. It sucks out your hope. But the grace of God, it totally refuels you that way. You know, I don't talk so much. I, I think it's much more helpful for Christians to not talk in terms of perfectionism or even excellence, but faithfulness. God has called you and I to faithfulness. And the reason faithfulness is different is because faithfulness is to a person. A perfectionist, you know, they're just, excellence is just like for a goal. Excellence is just for me. Faithfulness is to someone. You know, you can be totally, I was talking to Bob Baldwin, we were, we were chatting, he had recently watched um, a documentary on a, a famous wealthy person. And we got in this conversation about, you know, how many times when they interview the, the children of these folks, it's just really sad. You know, it's like, yeah, dad wasn't around. I mean, dad used to, you know, I, I never saw him really. He was driven by this and that. I mean, to me, that's a classic example is you've got an A in life. You fail, you know, you got an A in your career, you failed in life. If it's not about relationships, what's it about? But lastly, Paul became a team player. He says, it, he ends it by saying, whether it was I or they who preached, you believed. Paul is essentially going, I don't know when I preached that you actually came to know God or they preached or I, didn't, I can't even remember who I baptized. For Paul, for, for Paul it is team-centered. We, we studied the book of Romans and chapter 16 is all about Paul sharing the credit. This is a real sign of someone that is letting go of perfectionism. They can share credit. They can be quiet when other people are actually getting the credit for something they did. You know, there's times where you, you may come up to me and say, Glenn, you know, that thing that you said 
on this and that, you know, really touched my heart. And as soon as you said it, I realized I didn't say it. You know, Mike said it, someone else said it. But the point is this, as you and I begin to take that journey into grace, it shows up Monday morning, it shows up in the evening where you and I can say, I don't care who gets the credit around here. To me, that's my dream for our network here. You know, as we come together as three churches, we don't care who gets the credit. We just want to see God flourish what we've got here. So, our journey of faith out of perfectionism, acknowledging failure, grace-centered self-acceptance, and ambition of grace. There's no reason tonight why any of us has to keep wearing the chains of perfectionism. There's no reason for that. God has given us everything we need to begin to change. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help all of us that turn to you, that you would give us grace to learn the love of faithfulness out of the love of the gospel. Help us, Lord. Liberate us. Set us free. Show us every good thing we have in you. And I pray that you would make our community a daring, joyful, confident lot. In Christ's name, amen.